What's Jew's life? What? Jew's life. Simon says it sometimes. He says, Jew's life, Veronica. Jew's <laughs> life. Jew's life was a well-meaning slogan from a 1980s anti-drug campaign. And we used to add things to it. So I might say, for example, choose designer lingerie in the vain hope of kicking some life back into a dead relationship. <laughs> choose handbags, choose high-heeled shoes, cashmere and silk to make yourself feel what passes for happy. Choose an iPhone made in China by a woman who jumped out of a window and stick it in the pocket of your jacket fresh from a South Asian fire trap. Choose Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Instagram, and a thousand other ways to spew your bile across people you never met. Choose updating your profile. Tell the world what you had for breakfast and hope that someone somewhere cares. Choose looking up old flames, desperate to believe that you don't look as bad as they do. Choose live blogging from your first wank to your last breath. Human interaction reduced to nothing more than data. Choose 10 things you never knew about celebrities who'd had surgery. Choose screaming about abortion. Choose rape jokes, slut shaming, revenge porn, and an endless tide of depressing misogyny. Choose 9-11 never happened. And if it did, it was the Jews. Choose a zero hour contract and a two hour journey to work. And choose the same for your kids, only worse. And maybe tell yourself it's better that they never happened. And then sit back and smother the pain with an unknown dose of an unknown drug made in somebody's kitchen. Choose unfulfilled promise and wishing you'd done it all differently. Choose never learning from your own mistakes. Choose watching history repeat itself. Choose the slow reconciliation towards what you can get rather than what you always hoped for. Settle for less and keep a brave face on it. Choose disappointment and choose losing the ones you loved and as they fall from view a piece of you dies with them until you can see that one day in the future, piece by piece, they will all be gone and there'll be nothing left of you to call alive or dead. Choose your future, Veronica. Choose life. Anyway, it amused us at the time. Some slides setting up in a minute. <coughs> no? <coughs> okay, so I'm aware that was quite a risque bit of video for a nice Christian gathering like this on a Sunday evening, but I'm not really apologetic about it. It's not going to be. I wanted to give us a visible and audible picture or image or idea and burst our little Christian bubble as to what the world is actually like out there. Many of us operate and work within that. We see it every single day, but it's quite easy to forget that until we actually see it spewed out on a bit of screen. So I quite like that little clip. Um, to give you some background to that, that guy talking was Mark Renton. He's the main character in Trainspotting. That was taken from Trainspotting 2. Not quite as good as the first one, but it's still good. Um, he's expressing what he considers life to be. So he's an ex-heroin addict. So everything he's talking about there is in reference to this Choose Life campaign that happened in the 80s. And it was a, instead of like filling your veins full of heroin or whatever, choose life instead. Choose 
there's a load of other stuff. I, can, I can't repeat it in church, to be honest, the way he says it. But basically, it's like there's all this stuff you can have, this consumerism and everything. And he's trying to say, like, oh, so there's this, it's a bit of a cynical rant, to be honest, about the fact that, right, so I can do drugs on one side or whatever else, or I can choose this life that's full of consumerism stuff that supposedly is a valid lifestyle that we can have rather than junky lifestyle. Um, and to me, it serves as a visceral highlight to the problem with our world today. So I, I just wanted to give you a picture of that. So we're on a story, not a um, story, series in a minute on identity, discovering your spiritual DNA. And it has come to me to talk about something which anybody who knows me, after five years of faffing around with a research degree on Genesis 1 to 11, this is like my little baby, so I'm quite excited about it. But I am created, specifically the idea of the image of God, but we'll come back to that later. Um, so, what is our problem in the world? I want to say that fundamentally is we have a broken story, a broken narrative. Geeky people would call it a meta-narrative, big picture. You might have remembered that from some of the yobble stuff we did. But it just basically means what is our overarching idea in the world? What is it that we live in? Now, Christians allegedly have a different one, not always, but we supposedly have a different meta-narrative. But the world has a broken story, and I would say many of us live within that broken story as well. Um, so what happened? We'll go back 200 years. So there's this thing called the Enlightenment, I'm not going to get into it because it's really boring, to be honest. Like the past 200 years of philosophy is not that exciting unless you're really into it. I'm not. But, um, so in the 18th century, a bunch of guys, it would be guys, wouldn't it? It's not really many women involved with it because they had better things to do than sit around and discuss the details of philosophy. But, um, so a bunch of blokes all decided that the world was too esoteric, it was too spiritual, too kind of non-tangible. And they decided to try and operate within a world that it was all rationalistic. So if you can't see, touch, smell, sense it in any way, it's invalid. That's how they wanted to work. And they wanted to take God completely out of the equation, or any divinity at all, any religion, anything that was beyond the tangible, the stuff we can touch, feel. And they wanted to make everything quantifiable. So they needed to... They just changed our entire way of thinking. And they promised a solution to the human problem. So, allegedly, if we could see things rationalistically, if we could see things how scientists see them and have this structured worldview that didn't allow for any weirdy-beardy spiritual stuff or any sort of outside ideas, then things like poverty would disappear. Things like, like mass oppression would disappear. All of this stuff would go because that's all created by things like the church or, or the religious means. Um, problem is, it dramatically failed to deliver that. So, we, so all you've got to look at is, a, um, so allegedly science has the answer to everything, better without God, but two world wars, a failed sexual revolution, economic collapse, um, Mass objectification of women. All of this stuff happened over the past, say, 100 years. A lot more now. 
it's basically left us with a mess that the Enlightenment failed. So this rationalistic idea just was complete and utter bodge to be honest. It didn't happen. And what it did was it con confused what we were. So it has this contrast. So we have a contrast between the fact that on one side the Enlightenment says, you and me, we're just an accident. We're an animal. We're just blobs of matter that come together and don't really mean anything. You're utilitarian. It's a utilitarian worldview. So the idea that you are only worth what you... Gone. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, utilitarian. So you are only worth what you can bring to the big picture. So that your, your worth is only found in, say, your job that you bring to help everybody else. You don't have any uniqueness about you. You're only important because of what you can bring. And you're just a number. Like many of us have worked. So I've worked in a factory for five years before I did all this Jesus-y type stuff. And um, I know what it's like to live for five years just feeling like you are as much part, like a machine as the five machines I'm stood in front trying to operate. It's a horrible feeling. People live their entire lives like it, and I don't envy you, and I have a lot of respect for people who do that. But it's also contrasted against this modern, contemporary idea, post-modernity. I'm not getting into that because, again, it's quite dull. But um, massive individualism. So even though we're, we're not unique and we're just a number, you've got this contrast against the fact that everyone's un everyone is unique. It's just this messed up idea we have in the modern world. Mass consumerism, so what you can buy, what you can grab, what you can get, um, gives you some sort of worth. And more than that, actually, it gives you identity, but we'll talk about that in a bit. Um, subjective morality, so the idea that what we believe in terms of ethics, morality, what's the right or wrong thing to do, it's all based on how you feel, personally, not any big picture. So we don't really have corporate ethics particularly. We do, but they tend to be whatever Channel 4 decides to pump out, to be honest, at the minute. Which, yeah. It leads to massive, this thing called narcissism. So a narcissistic worldview. You might have remembered if you were around about a year ago, or two years ago it might have been now. So, wow, he's got a few grey hairs at the side of his head since he preached on it. But... Um, <laughs> Um, the idea of narcissism and the idea of love of self, but not just love of self purposefully, but this idea of a everything gets pushed to you. So it's all about how you make yourself better, but it also gives you, it gives rise to things like, if you want to know why Brexit or Trumpism or any of this stuff, like mass right-wing kind of isolationism, um, oppression, all of this stuff, it all comes out of this complete lack of understanding of our worldview and where we're at. So there's got this whole, these two things that don't fit together, trying to jam together. And this is what we're left with. Um, so we have a, a, what we call a meta-narrative that has no basic foundation other than nothing matters, all die, and so love self, which causes a huge problem. And it's led to the idea that you don't matter that much. There's no guarantee of achievement or being able to... So, especially for millennials, so there's guys that are still under 40 and above 21-ish. If you're under that age, I really don't envy you because what's coming next is even harder. But this idea that you can go... So we were all promised the world. You can go to university for free in the early noughties or you won't have to pay too much. You do your three years degree, you'd come out and you'd be able to earn 30,000 from off the cuff and you'd be all right for life. What happened was, we all went to university, came out the other end with an economic crash 
Houses were six times as much as it was supposed to be. Petrol cost four times as much as our parents paid for it. And we all, we basically been promised the world and the whole thing just fell from under our feet. Um, that's, that's not okay, because we just end up in a, if we base our whole identity in this, this, what's going to happen? We're going to collapse. So then what happens next in Johnny's little narrative of what's wrong with the world is um, what and who we are no longer gets defined by what it is to be human. Because what it is, humans don't matter. We're just biological blobs of nothingness. And we're only useful for how we bring stuff to the world. So the problem we get is we end up identifying ourselves on things like a secondary stuff. So gender or sexuality, our job or our role in, in society, our style, how we fit into a tribe. Like, I don't know, when I was growing up, it was all like, are you an emo or are you uh, like whatever else they had? Like that kind of stuff. You, you fitted into a tribe and it gave you identity. Trouble is, that's all just secondary. It's not what in the world of geekiness they call an ontological statement. So it's not a thing that's a core to what you are. It's something that is secondary and gives structure to what you are. It's very different. And what it does is it leads to a nihilistic behavior. It leads to self-destructive mentality. And if we don't matter, and nothing else matters, then what does it matter what we do with our bodies, our minds, um, what we do to other people even? And instead of seeing other people as being valued because of who and what they are, we value people based on what they can do to increase our narcissistic image in ourselves. Hence things like Instagram. So I don't know if any guys have seen it, but there's, um, there's a, um, a TV show out in the minute called um, something to do with bad habits, where they send a bunch of girls to like a nunnery. It's hilarious to watch, but it's also quite heartbreaking to watch a bunch of girls obsessed with image Instagram getting as many likes as they can. They're all like out and about partying every single night, but it's all based on how they look. They're put into this nunnery, and these nuns basically strip away everything that they value, their, like they build their life on and identity on, and all of a sudden, they're just a wreck, because like, they have no foundation. That's where most of the people in our world live. So some people, it's more extreme, but we all live within that. Um, what this does is then... so. In this country today, there is roughly six million people at any given time with mental health issues, ranging from the not so, not so bad, not that it's something that you can quantify in that way, to like horrendous. Now, I'm not talking about this from someone who's detached from it. I'll talk about that later if you want to, but um, so I'm being sensitive about this. But at any given time, there is three million people with depression and three million people with anxiety. And mental health is responsible for 40% of global um, dis disability. So 40% of people being unable to function normally within the world. That's not, that's not okay, and it's rising. I would like to suggest that maybe finding identity in this stuff that doesn't have any foundation can be ripped away at any given moment. <coughs> it's probably got an awful lot to do with that, and it's not in every case. So don't get me wrong, I know there's, it's a complicated matter, but when it starts to become rife in society, when it starts to become something that everybody starts to engage with and struggle with, there's got to be a bigger problem than just horrendous things that happen to people and cause this. 
So, so we live in this mess. And as um, Mark Renton says at the end, it, it amused us at the time. Like, so even though it, it's, it results in this like, deep cynicism of just like, whatever. Right, so we either carry on and just carry on living in it, or we just think to ourselves, there's not much you can do with that. And it, also, it, it lowers the true, our true worth, and it lowers, ultimately, the worth of others in this world. So it's a little bit depressing and a little bit miserable. So what is the solution? Now, my little helper's ready. I would like you guys to close your eyes, everybody in the room. And we're going to have the scripture read how I consider it to be the way it was supposed to be written and the way it was supposed to be heard. So instead of reading it from your Bibles, not that that's invalid, just tonight, <coughs> I'm going to let two people read it for us. Hopefully. And um, let it just work in the way it's supposed to work, which is a poem. It's supposed to give us a, a truth and a... <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, so just close your eyes and let scripture wash over you. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate the water from the water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it, and it was so. God called the vault sky and there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. And God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let the dry ground appear, and it was so. God called the dry ground land, and the wa gathered waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruits and seeds in it according to their kinds. And God saw it was, that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years. And let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. To govern the day and the night and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day 
And God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every, every living and moving thing with which the water teems according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number, and fill the water in the seas, and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creatures that move across the ground, and wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds and God saw that it was good then God said let us make human beings in our own in our image in our likeness so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of in the sky over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground so God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth, and to all the birds of the sky, and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has breath in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thank you. So... I don't know about you, but um, I miss a bit of yobbling, to be honest. Now, if you are new to us and you've not been around, um, you weren't around before September, I think we finished it, yeah. Um, last year, we did this thing called Year of Biblical Literacy, where it was more than just going through the Bible in a year together. It was learning how to engage with the Bible, how it engaged with us. And we got into a lot of detail, and I loved it because I'm a big geek. So you're going to get some more. So I'm bringing back Yobble as a, a one-off, like, greatest hits of Yobble. Like, the, <laughs> the reef the bands back together type thing. Um, could someone grab me a glass of water, please? Sorry. Um, so, yeah. Um, if you remember right back to the start of Yobble, if you don't, um, Owen, our curate, gave a talk on this part of the Bible. And he spoke about, it might have been you, actually, rather than Owen. Probably was you probably why I'm about to disagree with most of it. And, but, um, <laughs> we've already done that in the office. I won. Um, so um, it's this thing called true myth. Now, I don't want to get into an argument about it or anything like that, but I'm happy to discuss it later. The idea is that it's trying to give a theological narrative and a, a, rather than a factual account and a, a rigid kind of this is what happened historically, it's not interesting in that. It's trying to give us a deeper meaning. That's what the Bible does. It's beyond just our Enlightenment-style factual accounts of stuff. It does that in places, but for this, it's not 
I'm not looking at it in that way. We're looking at it in terms of the depth that's in there. Because you know what? It's an incredible bit of the Bible. And most of the rest of the, the, the Old Testament and the New Testament is based a lot on what this says. That's a, I could do a three-hour lecture on it and you'd all be falling asleep. But it'd be amazing. Um, so, we have the thing called the Spirit of God. And that's spirit. I have to be careful here. I don't mean to upset anyone. But it's not the Holy Spirit, as in uppercase S, Holy Spirit sent by Jesus, that we, who we engage with today. It is this idea of um, in a force or breath or wind or like, I've said this before to people, but I do a lot of my analogies with Star Wars, basically. And um, the ruach, is, that's the, the Hebrew word for it. The breath is, um, it's a bit like the force in Star Wars. It's this intangible thing that's around, in, through everything. And it gives things structure. And everybody has one. So God has his ruach. So it's about the ruach of God. Humans have one, each individually. Animals all have one. Um, the plants, trees, the water has it. It's just this, this life force. And um, it's the same in the ancient Near East, which is where this, this, we find this book was written as a broader picture in the same way that we call ourselves English and British. We can't ignore things like American culture or European culture. It's, it's a big melting pot. So they'd have the same idea. So it's this, this well-established idea that there's this force that not controls things, but just it's used by the gods to bring things about. So what we see happen just at the start that LJ and um, Amy read was that God speaks creation into being. So he uses his breath. And there's a reason why the, the Ruach's there at the start. It makes no sense unless you read it in this way that God speaks or breathes out and commands the Ruach to create this world, this, this massive, great big thing that's never been there before. And God expresses his creation through his breath. And he does this almost like with no effort. It's not like he's doing it with sort of... Isn't it? Careful here again. But it's not like there's a consideration in it. He's just like, do you know what? I'm God. I can just do this. Like, there's, there's the world. And he, he goes through the whole thing. And um, it's just done. It's like, okay, so I've got to make some trees, some grass, and blah, 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 blah. Just bosh. Done. It's out. There we go. There's the world. But then what he does was he starts to show off. Now, what he shows off with is, is something changes when it comes to creating the human beings. Now, there's a certain bit in this that's a little bit... Well, no, it doesn't work on there. So, let us is a bit of a, um, a baffling thing. So, what's God talking about when he says, let us make man in our image? Why is all of a sudden... This God who's on his own, no one else is around apart from this weird mystery force that's floating around next to him, suddenly talking in plural. Now, it's kind of key to understanding what it means to be made in the image of God, so I'm going to talk about it. So is it like the queen? So like royal kind of plurality? So like one of us, like one is not amused? That kind of way of thinking? No. Can't be that at all. Doesn't exist in Hebrew thinking, and it just that'd be stupid, quite frankly. <laughs> it's not part of Hebrew culture, so we just we can dismiss that. Um, this is the bit people might get a little upset with, but I can cope with it, don't worry. 
Um, is it the Trinity? No, sorry. The reason why that is, because the person who wrote this was around 500 years before Jesus even turns up, roughly. And the idea of God being in three persons, or Trinity, and being present there at creation, although that is valid, <laughs> but we can, we'll talk about that later, when it comes to ha- what this is trying to say, that's not what's going on. So, no, it's not the Trinity. It's kind of disrespectful to the, the um, people who were writing it at the time, because they just wouldn't have had that idea in their heads. Um, is it God? Talk- the other option is: Is it God talking about the angels? So there's this idea of angels are divine beings. So that's sort of quite a well-held view within theological world. But um, I don't agree with it because it kind of suggests that a that angels were involved in our creation, as in we are made in the image of angels and God. No, that's not how the rest of the Bible talks. And mainly it's based on Psalm 85, which says we are made a little lower than, and depending on whose translation you'll read, it'll be Elohim or Angelos, so either God or angels. It's only Angelos when it's translated into Greek, and it's, that's a bit of a bad translation. It's more like made a little lower than God, which will make more sense later on. Because there's no, there's no other being that's involved in the creation of the world. It's just God and his spirit that he breathes out. So I'd rule that out as well. So what does it mean? So the man, the legend, who I would possibly think, if you're going to sort of elect someone to be in the fourth member of the Trinity, it'd be this guy, Karl Barth, who's um, he's this theologian guy. He's, he's, I'd say go and read his stuff, but it's in like a massive volume of like, it's ridiculous. I'm, I've read three books of it and that took me a year. And there's like 20 of them, which is, yeah, it's mental. But he's good. Um, he talks about the idea of a relational creation. So that God, in the difference between when he creates the world and he breathes out and the, the world appears, when it came to humanity, something very different took place. God thought about it. And he really considered it. Because this thing that he was about to do was going to impact him. So the world's separate, it's breathed out from him and just is. When it came to humanity, he was doing something significantly different that meant that whatever he did was going to have an impact on who he was and how he was then going to operate for the rest of eternity. Um, that makes sense when you look at the other three times that those that us happens in the rest of that Genesis 1-11 to passage where it's let us make man, let they have become like one of us. This is later on. So God has to change the way mankind works. And let us go down and mess around with their language because they're all getting a bit too big for the boots, basically. There's like three times it happens, and it's all when it affects humanity and who God is. So basically what's happening is God is making a being that is based on his heart. So he creates intra, thing called intradivine instead of breathing out and creating, and it's just there. God takes himself and he gets into his heart and he pulls out a bit of himself, an expression of who he is, and he throws it into the world. And that's what's happening there. That is what, when it says about us, let us make man in our image, the, relation, the creation he's making is made from within himself. It's intimate, it's relational, it's not just an outward expression. 
So humanity, and that's humanity as a whole. So you'll note male and female. There's no hierarchy involved. It's a slow thing called a, another geeky word for you, but a chiasm. So it's like a poem that has a pinnacle and it builds up. And at the end, God makes male and female in his image. And slight side note, we have to avoid going into the idea that God then has a female character. Some people do that. That's inappropriate because you can't apply, really, you can't, I don't think you should be able to apply he or she to God because he's God. He's beyond anthropomorphic ideas of gender. But we just don't have a word in English that can attribute something to God other than he. That even that's not that helpful. So what does it mean to be made in, well, there you go, male and female in a heart? It's like I thought about it. So um, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? is a bit I get quite geeky about. So the word image in Hebrew is salem. Now that word's based in an Assyrian word, which is like Babylon and all of that lot, um, salmu, and you can't understand it in any other way other than idol or statue or um, representation. So it's what they would have done when they made, so like, like people make Buddhas, and then so, <laughs> they make Buddhas. It's a representation of that of the, the Buddha years ago. Or people have pictures of um, multi-armed elephants, Ganesh, and things like that. That's exactly what it means. So when it talks about humanity, it was understood as an, a physical manifestation of whatever the thing it represented. So you can't get away from that. And um, if you go into Genesis 2, you get this weird little thing where they show... Basically, Genesis 2, and it talks about the second bit when it creates Adam out of the clay and all of that, is echoed with um, how they used to make an idol in the ancient Near East. So it's a similar thing. So in the, ancient, the ancient Near East, they made an idol by... They'd craft it, so some guy would be in his shed, basically, knocking up an idol. Um, the king or the god, not that a god went down and spoke to him, but um, would then chop the hand off the guy who made the idol, both hands, and he'd be lame then for the rest of his life. But it was to show that the person who crafted the idol didn't actually make it. So what do you mean that guy made it? He's got no hands. He can't have made it. It's ridiculous, but that's what they did. And then they do this thing called the mouth opening, and the God breathes life in, much in the same way that God forms Adam out of clay and then breathes in life. And it was breathing in presence. So it wasn't just breathing in life. It was breathing in the very... So the God up here breathes in who he is into this inanimate object and it becomes alive. It's taken past the river in the same way that the rivers flow out of Eden. And it's placed in a garden, which should ring some bells if anybody knows anything about Genesis. Gardens are a big deal. And um, he spends time with the God in the same way that God walked with him in the cool of the day. The idols would do the same thing. They'd sit there in the garden it's ridiculous, but they would just sit there going, right, it's dead idol. And then the gods would accept it. And then they, were le they left the garden and they were placed into the temple in the Holy of Holies. And where the difference is that we were expelled from the garden and placed into the world, which is the temple. So when people were listening to how God breathed into Adam, they would have heard it in the way we were read to. They, they were listening. They would have heard that as the creator 
breaking into or endowing, endowing this creation with his living presence, where all the nations around um, Israel have gods that they can't speak, they can't act, who are they're basically all style, no substance, um, just elevated wooden or metal statues. Our God, Yahweh, the creator, fashions his own image, humanity. And as this guy, Bill Arnold, is one of my theological heroes, states it, that God, the sovereign creator of the universe, has, in a sense, replicated himself in creating this unique creature, the human. To be made in the image of God, which is a fact for all humanity, it's not just for those that now know Jesus or do the right amount of stuff. So however harsh it is, Hitler is as much made in the image of God as a newborn baby is. Horrible to think for us, but that's how God views it. And, and the very explanation of what humanity is, is to be created from the heart, of, the heart of God. That is where we find our very nature, our very being. What it is to be human is to be relationally connected to the Father. So where do we see this in its fullness? There's only one person that's ever managed it, because we're all fully aware. You don't have to read much further into Genesis to see we completely bodged it. So we, we didn't lose our image. What we did was we rejected it, and we covered it up with a load of crap. And we hid out the way from God. God didn't go anywhere. We're still intricately connected to him as human beings, all of us. But we just fight and fight and fight. We're basically like a toddler on a, you know, when, I don't know if they're allowed them anymore, but when I was a kid, parents were crawler. And we had the, um, those, like, leash. You used to have, like, your three-year-old on a thing, like a dog. <laughs> I need some counselling. But, um, <laughs> so you were pulled around. So basically, you were trying to run off, and the parents, like, just get here. That's what God does with us in a slightly nicer way. Basically, he doesn't go anywhere. We pull and pull and pull and run away, but he never went anywhere because that is, you cannot separate God and humanity. We're like this because we're an expression of who he is into the world. His very nature of who God is, his relational expression is humanity. So we cocked it up, but a certain person, Jesus, didn't. Now, we don't have to go into, um, we don't have time to go into the whole book of um, John 1. That's another lecture, preach, whatever you call this. But um, John 1 borrows from Genesis for good reason, because it's trying to show that where humanity fluffed it in terms of being like operating as the image of God, the Word became flesh. So the idea that God, Jesus, the Word, was with God. And it's the same thing as the relational heart thing. So, and Jesus is, it says in John that he comes from the Father. He was with the Father in the beginning, in the same way that we were created with the Father in the beginning, in the heart of God. That is where Jesus comes from. And you see, he's God made flesh, tangible, and he's the full explanation of what God is. He is the prototype, the beginning of what it meant to be the image of God. And it bakes your noodle if you really get into it, so you have to be careful. The idea that that image that we were based on, so God makes us in his image. What was that image? Somehow, in the great mystery of creation and the mystery of who God is, that was Jesus. In the same way that he then came down and embodied this 
life that we live in now, this covered up image. He embodied it as well, and he lived it, and he came out the other end of it. He died and resurrected to become the fullness of what it is to become the image of God. He's the Alpha and the Omega with it. He's everything that we were always supposed to be. And he comes back and he says to us, I invite you in to come home with me. I might have said this a couple of weeks ago, but when it talks about Jesus coming from the heart of God, John's Gospel then talks about John leaning back against the heart of Jesus, into the breast of Jesus. And that's there for a reason. It's to show that our very home and who we are as human beings and our identity is found in being relationally close next to the heart of God and coming home with Jesus. That's what it is to be human. It's not to be the right physical image. It's not to be the right, have the right role, the right job, the right Instagram account, the right social media presence, not to have the right kit, the right gear, the right clothes, the right car. All of that stuff's completely irrelevant. When you look at what it is to be human, it's to be the self-sacrificing person of Jesus. So what does that mean for us? Simply put, all are made in the image of God. However buried that gets in rubbish and nonsense, it is a statement of fact, and it is the very definition of what it is to be human. We are created relationally to the Creator, and all our value, our worth, and our identity is found in who He is. Where we too often look at ourselves and then apply God to how we are, Let's try and avoid doing that. Let's start looking at who God is and then seeing ourselves through that lens rather than trying to place God onto our lives and what we are and place them and fitting in between. Look at who God is. Look at who Christ is, his nature and his character, and then you will see what it truly means to be human. However damaged, however messed up we are or anyone else is, that's how we both view ourselves and ultimately how we view others. You can't have a renewed identity without living in a world where you see everybody else with that same renewed identity. That's what it is to follow Jesus, is to view the world in the same way that God does, through the lens and the eyes of Jesus, and live fully into what we're supposed to be. So unlike Mark Renton, who's having his cynical little rant at the start of um, Train Spotting, and he says, don't despair at having to just like choose life. Like, What's the point? Rather, knowing who created you and knowing he has never left our side and he is our very identity, choose life in abundance. Choose the God who says, come home and come back into my heart and rest your head against my chest. And that is where you will find who you truly are. Thanks, Johnny. Let's just um, pause and be still for a moment uh, in a